Here are some questions. The first one is a follow-up to the news article from last week, and that is that since God used natural disasters to punish people in the Bible, why doesn't he still do that today? Well, we can certainly see that in the Old Testament he did do just that, but he usually told us when he did. He said, I am sending a drought for these people, or I'm sending a famine, or I'm sending a flood, or whatever it is, that I'm sending the armies to come in and destroy the place and things like that. The prophets made it very clear when God was using those specific actions for a specific uh, reason to be punishing in that case. Uh, Fast forward a bit, then Jesus comes along, and there's a terrible natural disaster that happens. And we read about it in Luke 13, and people are saying, Jesus, was it because they were worse sinners that this disaster happened? And he said to them, verse 2 of Luke 13, Do you think those Galileans were worse sinners than all the people from Galilee? Is that why they suffered? Jesus said, Not at all. And you will perish too unless you repent of your sins and turn to God. Uh, It was a general warning from Jesus that all people should repent. And so when we have bushfires and droughts and everything else that happens to our sunburned country and throughout the world in different ways. Uh, It's not like we should be saying that that particular group that had their house damaged by whatever natural disaster are the ones who are particularly sinning. Absolutely not. But every time there's a natural disaster, it's an opportunity for us to stop and recognise that life is fragile and that we all need to repent And so when we have our houses damaged or houses damaged or destroyed or we know people who are in that predicament, it's a reminder again that we can't trust in our buildings, in our finances, in our health. We can only trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and that's what the timely reminder is every time that there's a natural disaster. Question two, did the man who fell out of the window defeat death? We met him last week. He was listening to an extremely long sermon by the Apostle Paul and it got very stuffy and he fell out of the third story window to his death. And then Paul went downstairs and put his body on top of him and the boy came back to life fully. Remarkable. The question here is, did that man defeat death? Well, I think he certainly did at that point. But then he went on to die, like we all will, unless Jesus returns before them. However, if he listened carefully to what Paul was saying up there in that stuffy upper room, then he would be ultimately able to defeat death because Jesus defeated death. And it's only by trusting in Jesus that any one of us can have any hope after we finish this life on earth. Question three, did Paul disobey the Holy Spirit in Acts 21.4? when he chose to continue to Jerusalem? This is a sort of a clever question. It tries to sort of draw the dots and put together the lines between the different things that happened in last week's talk. It's very clear that the Holy Spirit has said to Paul, you've got to go down to Jerusalem. You must do that. Oh, and by the way, when you get down there, you'll get beaten up and put into prison. But you've got to go down there. The Holy Spirit also spoke to other groups of Christians. We met them last week in the Scriptures. And when they got that same message, their understanding was, don't go. Why would you willingly go down to Jerusalem if you were going to get beaten up and put in prison? And so two different groups of Christians said to Paul, please don't go. The Holy Spirit says, don't go. And Paul said, no, the Holy Spirit says, do go. And the point is, I think the Holy Spirit was saying, when you go as you should, you'll get beaten up and put in prison. 
The others didn't want him to do that. Paul probably didn't want to either, but he knew that he needed to. And we find out exactly what happened today. And no surprise, uh, the Holy Spirit was right. Question four. Is Jesus just as powerful as God? Uh, Well, firstly, Jesus is God. So the Father is God. Jesus the Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God. Uh, Not three gods, but three persons, one God. So is Jesus just as powerful as God? Well, Jesus is extremely powerful. I mean, he, with a word, created the entire universe. So if you want to have a power competition, I think he's going to win anything. In terms of the relative power between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, uh, that's a good question for us to think about over over, uh, morning tea. But certainly we know that all three of them had different roles and yet were equal. And they, so they, were, they would not all do identical jobs. They worked as a team. And so are they just as powerful as each other? Well, my gut feel is yes, although we may not see all of them showing their full power because they did different things. Question five. Why do we seem to talk about Jesus more than God? Well, it's an interesting question. I think it depends which kind of circles of Christianity you go in. A lot of circles of Christianity will talk about God, this, God, that, God, that, which is great. Uh, Others will talk about Jesus, this, Jesus, that. Others will talk about Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, this and that. Um, At the end of the day, we are talking about the one God, three persons. I, I think we talk about Jesus an awful lot because we are... Christians, Jesus Christians, uh, Jesus is the one who has died for us, who is the one who rose from the dead for us, and he's the one in whom we live as Christians. We are in Christ. So when Paul says to the Christians, to those who are in Christ, in Ephesus, for example, he's saying that we are in the body of Christ Jesus. And so I think that's why we talk about Jesus so much, which is a good thing, by the way. Two to come. If a Christian's convinced that God's giving them a personal revelation of his calling and gifts, then how should they respond to someone who disagrees? Uh, God, in his kindness, gives gifts to the church. And we read about them in different parts of the Bible, that the gifts sometimes are the people, and other times they are the special abilities that the people will have. Uh, It may be that somebody thinks that they have a particular gift, perhaps of speaking or teaching, and they think that they really want to have an opportunity to stand up in front of a congregation and do a bit of that, uh, then that, that is a noble thing. And uh, if it wasn't for the opportunity when I was a, a young and pimply 16-year-old being allowed to have a little bit of a talk in chapel at school and things like that, that I, I wouldn't have thought that, you know, I might give this, as a, this a bit of a crack. And a few years later, here I am. Uh, we need to give people an opportunity to test their gifts. But... The Bible says also that gifts of leadership in particular are not gifts that you can appoint yourself. Uh, It's in fact the case that the elders were appointed by Paul. We we saw that in previous parts of the book of Acts. And it's the case that I am here as a leader because I was ordained by other ministers and the bishop who say, well, yeah, have the gig. Uh, This is important because we don't want self-appointed leaders. We want to have leaders who are appointed from within the church. And that's not just the case for that kind of gifting. It's the case for all sorts of gifts where we do need to test those gifts and be serving the congregation. See, the gifts are there for service, so they're not for personal gratification. Maybe a person thinks that they are an amazing musician uh, and yet it's tested and seen that perhaps not for other people's 
enjoyment. Uh, uh, if that's the case, then uh, they have a gift, perhaps, but not one that should be used in the church for service. Uh, I can't think of anybody in this room that that applies to, but uh, um, it, we need to be doing it out of service, and uh, that's very important in this. So how should we respond to someone who disagrees? With humility, I think, and with love, because the gifts are there for the building up of each other. Finally, how can you find out what God's will is for your life? <laughs> short answer. <laughs> well, the short answer is that the Bible tells us everything we need to know that's specific about our will for the future. So we are told quite clearly what it is that is a sin and what is allowed by God. And so we need to work within those parameters. If you feel that God is calling you to do something that is sinful, then no, it's not God calling you to do that. That's not God's will for your life. But what about other things like where you live, what job you do, whether you marry or not, and if so, whom, whereabouts, when do you retire, where do you move into retirement village, when do you blah, all these sorts of different things. Uh, what job do you choose? What, what, what football team do you go for? Which mobile phone do you plan do you choose? There's a whole lot of choices we need to make in life. What is God's will for your life? Well, he, he has made us as people who actually love the richness of his creation and we might find ourselves more attracted to one thing than another and that can be a, a helpful guide provided it's not sinful. Uh, and often we will only know God's will for our lives when we look back and say, wow, God, you opened doors, closed doors, held me along the way and here I am and thank you for taking me to this point. But even as I say that there are times when you might think it's the most natural thing to say, look, I want to live in Jamboree because of the rolling hills rather than the big smoke in Sydney because it's my preference. Uh, if it was that, there was the main reason that would make our decisions and inform us of God's will, uh, then we never have people going and serving in parts of Asia in, as missionaries and, and people going to really tough places to do tough things. Uh, we'd have school teachers who served in the, in, the, in the nice suburbs rather than the hard suburbs, and, and et cetera, et cetera. And so just because something feels nice doesn't necessarily mean that it is the best thing to do. So being out of our comfort zone can also be good. But ultimately, God's will is for us to serve him and to serve others and to not sin. And everything else sort of fits into that. Good questions. Thank you for them.